Vestal, New York, January 15, 1992. Addressed to Christians by Brother Dick Gorgas. Has a few verses, perhaps others will come up. Wait for Steve and Carol, too. So we'll sing while they're coming up. Oh, Jesus, friend unfailing, in the fourth of Acts that I'd like to start with tonight. Almost all of us know Acts 4.12. Well, it's Acts 4.13 that I'd like to take an expression from. Acts 4 and verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned or unlettered and ignorant men, They marveled. And here's the part of the verse that I really have on my heart tonight. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Mr. Darby's translation says they recognized them that they were with Jesus. Let's look at that verse in... 2 Corinthians chapter 4. <coughs> Verse 10. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal 
flesh. Forward to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, and verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Here these next two verses, beloved, are particularly on my heart. But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. What an expression, as the truth is in Jesus. Let those verses sink into our souls. You have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness, or truthful righteousness and holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good. That he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth but that which is good to the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption let all bitterness and wrath 
and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. <coughs> Just a few verses from the next chapter. Be ye therefore followers or imitators of God. I believe the word is imitators. Be therefore imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. But fornication and all uncleanness were covetousness. Let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I want to go on to verse 10 and read those two verses together, 8 and 10, because 9 is parenthetical. We'll go back and read it. Walk as children of light, proving what is acceptable or agreeable unto the Lord. Now I'll go back and read it. Walk as children of light, parenthesis, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness but rather reprove them. I think we'll stop there. It's not my purpose to speak about every one of these verses, but I want to make a few introductory remarks, beloved, that are much on my heart. I've sat back in recent months, over the last perhaps six months, and I've asked the Lord, and I hope you've done the same, what he is saying to us in our present difficulties. You know, it's very convenient to sit back and say, well, there's a problem over there, 
and to think we're not part of it. But God is dealing with us, beloved, and he is manifesting something. And I've asked the Lord for myself, what is it that he is manifesting? And beloved, I believe the answer that I have received from the Lord is the unreality of our lives as Christians. Am I saying that as an accusing thing toward my brethren? Not by any means. It's confessional. The nature of it is to say that I, in looking within, in examining what the Lord is saying to me is that the truth that I received so wonderfully when I was gathered in 1954 and those years afterwards has not been lived out in reality in my life. And you know, our young people can see it. They're not blind. They see the lack of reality. They see the insincerity. They see that we talk about the heavenly calling and then build palatial homes and and, uh, are occupied with things down here. And they say, what reality is there in that? And the truth we will not walk in, we cannot long hold. I made that remark at the Montreal conference a year and some months ago. And afterwards, someone took exception and thought I was um, finding fault. I wasn't. I was simply confessing that the reason we cannot hold on to the truth is that we will not walk in the truth. And so after laying out for us in such a wonderful way the glorious truth of the first chapters of Ephesians, the apostle says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you ought no longer to walk as the other Gentiles walk. God expects a difference between the believer and the non-believer. And that's where the lack of power has been, brethren. And God has put his finger on it, I believe, and manifested that we have talked a good game and we have put on a lot of external uh, symbols, perhaps, of, of piousness, and I'm, I'm not for one moment uh, suggesting that the symbol, symbolism or the, the, the outward signs, perhaps is a better word to put it, of inward truth should be abandoned. But I think that there has been a shell and the Lord says, I hate that and I'm going to show that I hate it. And he has manifested what's inside. And we don't like it, do we? We don't like to see what's inside. Brethren, I have no desire to discourage anyone. I didn't come all the way up here to Vestal to discourage my brethren. But rather, I want to share with you what I believe is the problem in our souls, in our walk. It's the walk, brethren. It isn't the doctrine. There's nothing wrong with the doctrine that was that was given to those men of God like J.N.D. and Kelly and, and McIntosh and, 
and you could name many of them, Dennett and all those brothers. There's nothing wrong with what Harry Hayhoe taught us or Gordon taught us. You know, that some have concluded because of our poor walk that there's something wrong with, the, with what we believe. There's nothing wrong with what we believe. God is putting his finger on the fact that we're not living in those things. And he's manifesting the unreality of our hearts. And so the apostle says, now I want you to walk in this truth. I want you to walk in it. That's what hurts, doesn't it? I remember Mr. Kohler saying, and it wasn't original with him, I can't remember who he quoted it from, but when I was first gathered, I was gathered in Brooklyn, and I had the wonderful privilege of sitting under Charles Kohler's ministry uh, for a number of years until I got married. And I remember how he used to say to us that the truth has to get down into your boots. And he used to quote someone with that quote, but... What does that mean? It means that God wants reality, truth in the inward parts. Truth lived out. We read of those that precious statement about those disciples in Acts chapter 4 that they recognized that they were with Jesus. And I just want to challenge your heart and mind. As we walk through this world, do men look at us? Do women look at us and say, He's with Jesus. In reality. Or do they say, no different from anybody else. And that's the problem, brethren. God has put his finger on it and manifested the ugliness of unreality, of sham, of outward, perhaps, carefulness about certain things. We're not talking about legality and rules here. This is not rules. This is not a mode of dressing. This is not, this is truth in the inward parts. Does that mean we should be careless about our clothes? Not by any means. I want to tell you that every godly girl that I see that's, uh, that is from her heart is trying to manifest what God wants in a Christian woman just thrills my heart and I thank God for it. But I believe the Lord has looked inside our hearts and seen that there's an awful lot of sham. And every brother that I see that has that sincere desire to live for Jesus Christ and is careful about this or that in his life, it just overflows my heart with praise to the Lord. But at the same time, I look and I think of the of how things can can look pretty good to our brethren. And God sees the awful reality that we are not walking in the good of what he has given us in his precious word. I want to be very plain and blunt about it. I don't want to be accusatory because I don't know. Thankfully, I don't know how the brethren walk here. But I don't do know that the general state of the people of God is not good. And the Lord has seen what it is. And he says, Thou knowest not that thou art poor and miserable, naked, blind. That's our real state before God. Where are we today? Are we in the days of the glory of Solomon? Not by any means. Are we in the days of the recovery under Hezekiah or Josiah? No. 
We're right down at the end. We're in Malachi. Are we in the days, the glorious days of Ephesus? No. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Are we in the days of the recovery of the gospel in the Reformation? No. Are we even in Philadelphian days? No. I did not say there is no Philadelphian character or spirit today. That isn't what I'm saying. I'm saying the general condition of the people of God is Laodicea. And we perhaps stood here in our meeting rooms and looked outside and looked over here and said, in the systems they do this and in the systems they do that, and there's this wrong in the denominations and that wrong in the denominations. And, and meanwhile, the Holy Spirit of God has been trying to reach our hearts. And we've been shutting it out. And now the Lord has said, I'm going to let you know what, what sort of things there are. And we're shocked. And we bow our heads. But are we learning the lesson? Do we know what the Lord is saying to us? He says, I want truth in the inward parts. I want reality, beloved. That's the message the Lord put on my put in my heart as to me. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe he showed me that it's the general condition of the people of God. And we do not need to look out there, and I, I hear it in our meetings, and sometimes I almost... In fact, I have spoken up a few times about it. I hear, I sit in a reading meeting and I hear, in the systems they do this, and in the systems they do that. And I will not sit quietly when I hear that anymore. Because, it's not that I don't believe that there are, there is a path of truth to walk in. You know I believe in that. The Lord took my feet and put them in that path many years ago. And I'm not going to step out of it by His grace. But we have no business pointing our fingers. God has shown that we do not appreciate and value the truth that we possess. Now the sad thing is that what I believe has happened is that some of our young people, and older ones too, unfortunately, have seen this and have said... Well, there's nothing to be maintained anymore. Let's give it up. Let's all just go wherever we want. That's the last thing we ought to do. Because if we step out of the path that we're in and go in some other path, that isn't the answer to the unreality in our hearts. We need to get down on our knees and say, Lord, make me real. Make me real. Make the truth in me as the truth was in Jesus. And is in Jesus, I should say. So the apostle says here, you have not so learned Christ. If, and that's a challenge, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth 
is in Jesus. How is the truth in Jesus? I think that's such a wonderful expression, as the truth is in Jesus. Perfect consistency with what he taught. The Lord Jesus was asked, Who art thou then? He said, Altogether that which I say unto thee. There was no difference between what the Lord said and what he did. And the Spirit of God delights to direct our attention to that. The Lord, when he was down here, Jesus, see it says Jesus there. What does Jesus bring before us? It brings before us the Lord in his walk down here as a man to the glory of God. How was the truth in him? In living reality. In living reality. I hope Steve won't mind if I ask him to repeat a remark he quoted from Darby about from Philippians this afternoon. Do you remember what this evening I should say? Uh, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. If you are in Christ, and Christ is in you, then let me see nothing but Christ. And you know, sometimes I, I, I almost wince when we sing, Nothing but Christ is on we tread, the gift unpriced God's living bread. And I think, Oh Lord, do we really mean that? Do we really mean it? Is this a reality in our hearts? Do people look at us and say, they've been with Jesus. They're Jesus followers. I see Christ in every step of their pathway. Are they perfect? That's not the point. It isn't perfection we're talking about here, although in Him it was. But in us... It ought to be the manifestation of the life of Jesus. That's what God wants. He wants that the life of Jesus be manifested in our body, in our mortal flesh. Have you heard him? Have you been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus? Now, how do we get taught? How do we hear Him? You know, the world, the, re- the world is uh, very much interested in phenomena that would be like some voice speaking to them out of the, sounding like it was coming out of a well and saying, I'm Jesus and I'm sending you forth from now on to do this and that. No, my people will, will treasure some little thing like that. And, But I want to tell you, the Lord speaks to you day by day by day through the pages of this book. Don't be looking for some uh, phenomenon of having a voice speak to you while you're lying in your bed. I don't deny the Lord sometimes does that, but I don't think that's the way that the Lord usually speaks to us. He teaches us through His own blessed footsteps. His own blessed footsteps. And there's no substitute for opening up the precious Word of God than meditating on the life of the Lord Jesus Christ and see the display of the truth in Him. Isn't that wonderful? 
Doesn't that thrill your heart? It does mine. To, to just think of how God unfolds for your benefit and mine in the pages of the Gospels a life that was even consistent God-glorifying, perfect in every aspect. You know, there's a wonderful statement in Mr. Bellet's ministry in the book, The Moral Glory of the Lord Jesus. May I suggest to you that if you have never read that book, young people, it's not hard. It takes a little thinking, but it's not hard to read. It's one of the sweetest books you'll ever read. I make it a practice to read that book every five or six years just to refresh my soul. The moral glory of the Lord Jesus. He makes a statement in there. The eye of God found more to please it in one moment of the Lord Jesus' life here on earth than it would have found in an eternity of Adam's innocency. The eye of God found more to please it in one moment of the Lord Jesus' life here on earth that it would have found in an eternity of Adam's innocency. Is that a dogmatic statement that, that is extreme? Not by any means. Because what was in the Lord Jesus came out, not in the Garden of Eden where everything was favorable, but in a life in this wicked and cruel and filthy world. And his life went on in perfect display of all that God had communicated. He was the Word. He was the Word. And he was the truth. He was the truth. Not just that he told the truth, but he was the truth. Do you want to see truth displayed? Look at Jesus. That's our problem, isn't it? It's so simple that it's almost... He said, well, I could sit down now and not speak anymore because that's exactly what it is and I feel so persuaded of it that I, I feel I could just sit down and leave that with you. But God doesn't leave us there. Because we have to have a picture drawn sometimes. We say, wherein are we not displaying the life of Jesus? What is it that we're doing that's wrong? And so the apostle says that ye put off. Ah, there's some putting off to do, beloved. You got a dirty set of clothes on. There's only one thing to do with it. What do you do? Take it off. Take it off. Never mind about the other side of it. That comes right away. But the first thing is to get rid of the dirty stuff. And that's why it says here that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Those lusts that are at work in us are deceitful lusts. It's important to see that. They deceive us. They deceive us. We begin to justify them. We begin to excuse them. Defend them and practice them. And so they're deceitful. 
Put it off. Get it rid of it. It's corrupt. All that we were, that old life, that horrible thing that we were before we were saved, there's only one thing to do, and that's to put it off. And be renewed, verse 23, in the spirit of your mind. How do you get renewed in the spirit of your mind? It's a very strange expression, the spirit of your mind. I'm not sure I know what it means. But I do know how we renew our spirits. To so get into the pages of the Word of God. To get into the Lord's presence. This is not, I want to repeat, this is not the putting on and the putting off of solely of outward customs. It may include some of them, but that's not the fundamental thing here. It's the inward man that God is interested in. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans chapter 12 says, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have you been transformed? What a wonderful thing it is to be transformed. That's a little different from grinding out some change in us. This is something vital. This is a real and vital change in our whole outlook. And it comes about by the action of the Spirit of God using the Word of God. From the time we're born, we're exposed to a whole set of values except as our parents um, uh, help us with this, we're exposed to a whole set of values that is contrary to God's mind. The whole mindset of the generation in which we live is contrary to the Word of God. And our kids are exposed to it in schools. The media bring it before us. The the bulletin boards, the, the billboards, the... Everything. You go into a McDonald's and there's posters and things that bring everything. It's not wrong to go into McDonald's. I'm just pointing out what what goes on. As you go into these places, you're exposed to this constantly. And how do you get straightened out in your thinking? How do you get transformed? Transformed. Renewed. Our minds need to be renewed. Daily reading and meditation on the Word of God. Getting into the Lord's presence. Recognizing what kind of a world we live in. And getting down on our knees and saying, Lord, change me. Transform me. And God's delight is to change us into the image of His beloved Son. That's His purpose. Whom he did foreknow, them also did he predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's God's purpose for us. To conform us to the image of his Son. As the truth is in Jesus. That the life of Jesus might be manifested 
in our bodies, in our mortal flesh. There's a little difference in those two verses. It's not my purpose to get into them, but read them carefully. You'll see that I think Gordon puts it this way. If we don't do what the first verse says, if we don't bear about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus, then God knows how to deliver us to death so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our mortal flesh. But the point is, that in both cases, that the life of Jesus, not the life of the Son of God, not the life of Christ even, but the life of Jesus might be manifested. That's very practical. It's right down where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? It's where the rubber meets the road. I like that about the Word of God. It always gets down to where the rubber meets the road. Forgive that expression, but I think it's a great expression. I think it, it just says what, what really is lacking with us. The rubber doesn't meet the road very often in our lives, does it? And we're walking in a way that is totally false and unreal. And then we're surprised when our children stand up and say, I don't want that. I don't want it. Is there anything wrong with what we profess? No, brethren, that's the mistake that some are making. They're saying, well, yeah, no, that shows that it isn't any good. You know, let's go back. Let's give it up. Mr. Darby was wrong. Mr. Kelly was wrong. Everybody was wrong that taught all these things. And let's go off our own way. And we got some new ways we're going to go. That's not the problem. It's not what the Lord is saying to us. Give up the truth that you held. What he's saying is put it into practice. Live it out. In reality. And sometimes, beloved, will you permit me to say this? Sometimes we are so concerned with the ecclesiastical side of things that we forget that Christianity is a 24-hour-a-day life. It's a -a 24-hour-a-day life. It involves everything. How you talk to the milkman. What you do when you get too much change in the in the quick check or whatever kind of stores you have like that around here. What do you do about it? What do you do with regard to filthy talk that's going on around you? And there's so many different things that are just kind of glossed over by us. Now, I just want to take a few minutes to go over some of the specifics because, as I say, God goes over some specifics with us. Verse 25. I should call attention to 24 first because I've just given you the negative side. It says that you put on the new man. Put on the new man. Put on the new man. Which... After God is created in truthful righteousness and holiness. You know, there's a kind of untrue righteousness and holiness that we've been very guilty of sometimes. And that is that we worry about what size tie we wear and whether we uh, do this or that or the other thing that is totally external. And I don't mean that God hasn't spoken about external things. 
But in placing an emphasis on that, we've made a pretty good job of deceiving one another as to what the reality is inside. And somebody can put on a false holiness and a false um, uh, righteousness that just covers over where we really are. And I think the Lord has said to us, I'm going to turn that inside out and show you what it really looks like to me. And I don't like it, and you don't like it, and it hurts, but how should we respond to that? I, for one, want to get down on my knees and say, Lord, it's true. Make the truth displayed in me as it is in Jesus. That's what's wrong, brethren. It isn't the doctrine that's wrong. It isn't being gathered to the name of the Lord Jesus that's wrong. It isn't not having a choir that's wrong. It isn't not having guitars in the meeting. And putting guitars in isn't going to correct those things. You hear all sorts of foolish talk like that. That, you know, that's what's wrong. We don't have any music. Or that's what's wrong. We don't have an ordained minister. We don't have this and we don't have that. That isn't what's wrong. What's wrong is that we have been talking a game and we haven't been living it. (coughs) Day after the Super Bowl, and I'm not a Super Bowl fan. For one thing, it's on the Lord's Day and I wouldn't uh, waste my Lord's Day with that, but I won't be down Dorothy, Lord willing. (coughs) But uh, the day after the Super Bowl, if you go into any place where men congregate, Everyone knows what the Buffalo Bills did wrong and what the, what the, uh, I don't know who the other team is, I don't even remember, but don't tell me, but I do happen to know that Buffalo is one of them that's going to be in the Super Bowl. <clears throat> and everybody will know how to do it, and they'll all talk the game, won't they? That isn't where the rubber meets the road. But where the rubber meets the road was the day before, when they were out there on the playing field, and calling plays and doing them and catching balls and running with them and tackling and that sort of thing. And what I'm using that to illustrate is that we can talk Christianity, but God wants us to walk Christianity. He wants us to walk to the glory of God. To act like Christians with one another. To put into practice what we've learned and enjoyed in a theoretical way. And I sit in a conference sometimes and I quake. I literally quake as I think of the display of knowledge of Scripture that's there. And I thank God for it. Don't misunderstand me. But I quake at the responsibility that goes with that to put it into practice. And I wonder if we're really exercised about it. Am I saying, let's give up the profession of the truth? You know I don't mean that. I'm saying, walk in it, beloved. Walk in it. That's where there's power. There are people, and this shakes up young people sometimes. They come into contact with some Christians who have just come to know the Lord. And they're fresh in their souls. They know nothing about assembly truth. But they know that they're to walk to the glory of God 
and they know they're to love one another and they start putting it into practice and they form some little group like some so-and-so fellowship and and I, I'm glad I don't know the names of any around here because it would only make you think I was criticizing them, which I'm not. I've learned this, that those people are walking in the reality of what they know. And we sit back smugly and we say, yeah, but we they don't walk in this truth and they don't know this truth and they don't know that. Far better, brethren, far better that we walk in the little truth that we know and ask God for more than that we have this big body of undigested and unpracticed truth because we get for ourselves greater condemnation. And don't misunderstand me. I want to be very clear. I'll say it four or five times, I guess, so that I don't, so you don't go away from here and say, Brother Dick thinks we ought to give up on all the, the distinctive truth that brought the gathered saints out. Not one moment! I think back to the time when the Lord gathered me in Brooklyn 39 years ago, and what a joy it was! I was 38 years ago. I was, what a joy it was to be brought into the reality of the things I had studied in the Word of God, and to be with that little company of Christians down there on Gates Avenue. And I won't give it up by the grace of God. But what the Lord has shown me, and I believe to my shame is, that for that many years of having been walking with brethren who had so much truth, where, where, where am I today? Where have I gone? What does God see when he looks into my heart? Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. I don't know if you have the problem I have. I've been receiving letters back and forth from Canada. And some of us have read some of them. And it's not profitable. But as we read them, here's one written by one brother on this side and one brother written on the other side. And you think, are they talking about the same thing? Same event? What's wrong? We're not remembering that God wants truth, doesn't he? And we learn very quickly how to twist things to make them seem like they favor us. And don't ask me who I think is twisting and who isn't, because I think it's something the Lord would exercise all of us about, that we have to be careful about that. I think the less we write, the better. Someone remarked back in 1986 that if some of us had spent more time on our knees instead of in front of our computers, we would have done better. Beloved, truth. Truth. Do believers lie to one another? Yes. I have to confess, brethren, that this scripture has spoken to me about things as I look back over the years. Let every man speak truth. How can I say something to Michelle that isn't true if I consider that we're members one of another? That's a motive, isn't it? It's a wonderful motive that I can't lie if I really am in the consciousness that we're members one of another. We're, we're in the same body. We're, we're working for the same things. We're, we're on the same team, you might say. How can we lie to one another? How would that be if we had on a, on a team of some sort that was lying back and forth to one another? There'd be no victory at all, would there? 
And yet that's what's happening. We lie to one another. Put away lying. Verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Now there's a time in Scripture for anger. But the, the guard here is don't let the sun go down on your wrath. The moment you get into bed harboring anger, it turns into bitterness. And the devil gets an occasion against us. It no longer is holy indignation. It's no longer the new nature. Be angry and sin not. I believe the Apostle Paul was angry when some came to Galatia. You can just, it just crawls out of the pages of, of Galatians that the Apostle was angry. I would that they were cut off who trouble you, he says. That's anger. But if we begin to cherish it in our hearts overnight, then it deteriorates into sin and the devil gets a place. So it says, neither give place to the devil. Don't give him a chance to bring in that which divides and that which disturbs the saints. Let him that stole steal no more. Is it possible for believers to steal? This is the Ephesians the Apostle is writing to. Not the Corinthians. Not, it's not the book of James. This is Ephesians, beloved. Let him that stole steal no more. But you know, God never sets just negatives before us. This isn't the law. This isn't law keeping that's brought before us. Every one of these statements carries with it a new motive that goes far beyond the law. It says, but rather let him labor with his hands, working that which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. You know, a few years ago, if you had said that America was a needy place, everybody would have laughed at you. This country needy? And I just wondered back then, I wasn't, I had no idea the Lord was going to do this, but as I thought about it, I wondered if the Lord would um, allow us to know what need is. And little did I realize how quickly we were going to have brothers and sisters without work, young couples unable to afford a house to buy, struggling, two jobs, some of us, to try to keep our heads above water. Why? Because we've become so cold in our souls toward the need of the Lord's people. He says, I'm going to put the need right out where you can see it now. It was there before, but we just didn't look for it, did we? It was covered over with this gloss of prosperity in the country. Now the Lord says, now I'm going to show you the need. And what about our hearts? Are they turned in love toward our brethren? This is practical Christianity, beloved. This is the truth as it is in Jesus. This is giving to him that needs. Look around for need. Andrew Miller says in his little book, on the Brethren, the Origin, Progress, and Testimony, he said that in the beginning the collections were so great among the gathered saints 
that they had to form a little committee to go through London looking for need. Wouldn't it be nice if that were so today? If the Vestal Assembly had appointed a little committee to go find out, maybe you do, I don't know, they had to go find where they could, what they could do with the money that the Lord brought in. But we've become so selfish in our lives, brethren, that we've forgotten need and what it is. And if you still feel that there's no need, ask the Lord if you shouldn't go down and visit some of your brethren in Peru and you'll see need. But I think you'll see it right probably within your own assembly, within your own town. Let no corrupt or filthy communication proceed out of your mouth. The tongue is an unruly evil, says James. It's a fire. And no man can tame it. But God can. God can. And he wants to tame our tongues. And so he says to us, let no corrupt communication. Now that's the negative side of it. I always like to see that it has a positive side. It says rather... um, but uh, that which is good for the use of edifying that it may minister grace unto the hearers. What a rule for opening our mouths when we open our mouths that we might always ask ourselves, will this build up? Will it minister grace to the hearers? Or is this going to tear down and corrupt? It's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? This chapter, it's right down to where we live and walk and do. And it, it, I don't know, do your toes hurt? Mine hurt this evening. This hits my toes. It pinches my toes. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Now people will talk about grieving away the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that here. In fact, the verse, it's wonderful to me that God, where you might wonder that, he always builds in a safeguard right there. So you don't make that mistake. He says, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. So that settles it that you can't grieve away the Holy Spirit. You're sealed to the day of redemption. But what can you do? You can grieve, grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Notice it's called the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. Everything in our lives which is contrary to the truth as it is in Jesus grieves the Holy Spirit of God. That's sobering, isn't it? How many times today did I grieve the Holy Spirit of God? How many times today did you grieve the Holy Spirit of God? May we have tender hearts, beloved. Verse 31 says, let most of our bitterness. Is that what it says? Let most of our bitterness. No, all bitterness. There's a lot of bitterness among the people of God. Among the gathered saints, yes. And I've heard some of it spill out. It breaks my heart. Bitter feelings. I'm not just talking about division problems among the Lord's people. That's bad enough. But right within an assembly, some sister or brother 
won't talk to another one and they're bitter against them and they say for 15 years that brother's mistreated me in the prayer in the uh, care meeting and and I I just don't like it and and they won't shake hands won't speak to one another that's an awful thing what does it say here let all bitterness and I'm going to read this from Mr. Darby's translation. It says, in heat of passion. Heat of passion. Do you ever flare up in a passion of anger and say something you shouldn't? I have. Have you ever sat in a care meeting? Sisters, you're spared from this and it's a mercy. Sit in a care meeting and things get pretty hot and one brother loses his temper and says something he shouldn't. Let it be put away from you. What else? Wrath. Clamor. Injurious language. Injurious language. Do you know that your words can injure other Christians? Are you aware of that? Do you know you can be hurtful with what you say sometimes? You can open your mouth. And you know it is too. That's why it's called malice immediately afterwards, I believe. Sometimes we say something injurious and we don't mean to, but sometimes we say, I'll get him, I'll zing him, I'll zing her with that remark. That's not the truth as it injures Jesus. You never find that in the path of the Lord Jesus. They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And what do we do? We injure our brothers and sisters with what we say. Let it be put away from you with all malice. And then it ends with this wonderful positive note. And be ye kind one to another. Now I know we teach that to the children. As soon as they learn how to, we think this is a good way to straighten out the children. Was this written to children? What do you think, Brother Charles? Was it written to children? Was it written to 80-year-old men too? 60-year-old men? Ah, yes. Sisters, was it written to you? Yes. Be ye kind one to another. It's not just one-sided. It's one to the other. Being kind. We can be so unkind sometimes toward one another. Now, brethren, I know we live at distances from one another. We live in a pressure cooker society. We don't get close to one another. Sometimes we only see one another a couple of times a week. And and it's only in a rush. And, and we need to be together more. We need to get together more. We need to be having dinner with one another. We need to go out and do something together. You know, my wife and Sue Hadley for many years have at least twice a week gone out and had lunch or, or uh, gone shopping together. And you couldn't get a wedge between those two no matter what you do. I think it's a good thing. 